Good morning, Redemption. My name is Josh Butler, one of the pastors here, and many of you have a pink spoon sitting on your chair. Just hold on to those. We'll get to those in a bit. I read an article this last year uh, called The Four Americas. It was on what it called The Four Americas. It was a cover story in The Atlantic. It was talking about some of the cultural divides in our country today. And it was interesting. It was describing some of these cultural divides through this language of these four Americas. And so the way he described it, the first one was what we called Smart America. This was like Silicon Valley, like the tech industry, progress, kind of optimistic, the sense of we can change the world uh, with, uh, through science and technology and institutions. The second America he called was Free America. This was sort of classic conservatism with like an emphasis on the individual and free markets, on taking responsibility for yourself, on kind of, you know, make your bed and pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Uh, the third America he called Woke America, and he was using that not pejoratively, but to describe those who are very concerned with like a legacy of injustice in our country, and often though not, no longer trusting as much in external institutions and authorities, and so an emphasis on going internal and uh, looking within and an emphasis on things like your gender or race and self-expression and the demand for recognition. And the fourth America he called was real America, uh, quote unquote real America, what politicians have often called kind of the heartland at times. Uh, the heartland in, tends to be more rural, people who have sometimes felt left behind economically uh, and seen things like jobs being outsourced, skyrocketing rates of addiction, often an emphasis on a need for security. And he observed how we often talk today kind of left, right, Democrat, Republican, and all. Um, but what we don't often see is that these divisions are more complex, that we have uh, more deeper than the political are these cultural divisions, uh, these fault lines in a type of culture war. And that this is a kind of cultural civil war today. It helps make sense of why sometimes it's left versus left and right versus right, that, that there are these deeper fault lines in our culture. So he's describing this cultural civil war Although I don't know how civil it is, per se, right? It feels like perhaps at times more like an uncivil war with how we can treat each other. And I had two responses when reading this article. The first was, he stole that from Jim. <laughs> or Jim Mullins. So those of you know, man, uh, Jim Mullins is one of our lead pastors here. And you know, over the last few years, man, two, three years ago, he was talking about this stuff. We were here for our King of Kings campaign and helping to frame how we navigate some of the cultural division and tension and all in our day. Uh, he was ahead of the curve on all this. I felt like this guy had like listened to one of his sermons and just kind of given it some new language or something. And then my second uh, response, though, was one of fear. And what I mean by that, I, don't, I, don't, I know we're not supposed to be afraid, we're not supposed to live in fear, so that's not what I'm talking about. But this bigger sense, kind of this general sense of going, man, I'm afraid for our churches in the season of ahead that churches in our country will flat fracture along these lines. And really, what we've seen is that they already have, that in many ways, you could see how churches have fractured. There's often been a large-scale contempt for one another, driven by some of these fault lines in our culture. Rather than staying at the table together in unity, many have abandoned and left and realigned with churches that just would align with their particular preference. And so... I think we have a danger as the church in America of having a future where you've got kind of the smart churches and the free churches and the woke churches and the real churches or whatever, you know, just using his language, kind of these general trajectories of people having a higher alignment with their ideology than with unity in Christ. This raises the question, how do we follow Jesus in an uncivil war? How 
Do we follow Jesus in an uncivil war? Today, we are looking at an uncivil war. We're gonna be in 2 Samuel chapters one to five. That sounds like a lot, we're gonna get through it. And uh, man, 2 Samuel one to five, we're actually gonna start in chapter two. So if you're Bible, you wanna start by opening there, turn to 2 Samuel chapter two. Uh, but the context here, there's an emphasis here, uh, it says in 3.1 that there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And so what has happened in this passage is that Saul has just died at the end of 1 Samuel. Here in our We Want a King series, we've seen the life of Saul, and now at the end of 1 Samuel, Saul has just died. So at the beginning of 2 Samuel, Saul has died, and the question is, who's in charge now? It's the end of an era. And tragically, what we'll see today in these chapters is that the people of God who are supposed to be united under God as king are now torn apart by power struggles, by division and strife. Yet also in David, we're going to see a different posture, one that foreshadows Christ and shows us how we can faithfully navigate these things today. So the title for this message is Uncivil War. We're going to see how we can follow Jesus, the King of Kings, amidst the uncivil war of our time. So let's start in 2 Samuel chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. Uh, again, Saul has just died, and the question here is who's in charge now? We read, Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. Now, Abner was Saul's general, and Ishbosheth is Saul's son. So this is the house of Saul. Saul's general, his son, are going out to Gibeon. Then in verse 13, and Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and the servants of David went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. So Joab is David's general, and so this is David's crew also going to the pool. And they sat down, the one on the one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. So it's gonna be a pool party, right? Like negotiations, how are we gonna sort this thing out? What, who's gonna be in charge now? And Abner said to Joab, let the young men arise and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. We have a little American idol competition here, right? Then they arose and passed over by number, 12 for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and 12 of the servants of David. And each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side, so they fell down together. Well, that escalated quickly. They're expecting a little wrestling match, and pretty soon they're killing each other. And therefore, we read that place was called Helkath Hazarim, or the, the field of sword edges, or of dagger edges, which is at Gibeon. And the battle was very fierce that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. Well, it is tragic when brothers are stabbing brothers. It's the scene here. In Israel's uncivil war, brothers are stabbing brothers. They are supposed to be one nation under God, one people under God as king, united together as God's people. But they have different visions for which direction the people of God should go and which direction the, their country should go. And now they're killing each other in a power struggle to see who gets to be in charge. Now, the generals, they kind of call some young men together, like, hey, you'll pick your 12, and we'll pick our 12, and we'll have this little wrestling match. And so they're kind of getting in there, going to do this wrestling match. Before we know it, they're pulling out these daggers, these kind of small swords, and they're stabbing one another. It's a bloodbath. These, you can imagine the scene where the tempers are kind of raging, and the fears and anxiety are high. And now, before long, these young recruits are killing each other. The picture is tragic. They're supposed to be the people of God, but they are tearing each other down. And this power struggle to see who's in charge, we see here first in this scene that David's side starts winning, like Saul's side takes some losses. But we go on, and then we see that David's side also takes some losses. Let's pick up in verse 18 again. It says, 
And the three sons of Zeruiah were there, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. Now, Asahel was as swift of foot as a wild gazelle. So he's like our very own Paul Dedewo, right? Olympic runner, going at it. <laughs> and Asahel pursued Abner, and as he went, he turned neither the right hand nor the left from following Abner. So he's like, like a missile locked in on his target, coming down, singular focus on him. Then Abner looked behind him and said, is it you, Asahel? And he answered, it is I. Abner said to him, turn aside to your right hand or your left and seize one of the young men and take a spoil. Like, take one of them out, not me. But Asahel would not turn aside from following him. And Abner said again to Asahel, turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother, Joab? He's going, dude, I know you're Joab's little brother, and if I hurt you, he's gonna never let me hear the end of it, so go somewhere else. But he refused to turn aside, and therefore Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear so that the spear came out at his back. Ugh, it's gory. And he fell there and died where he was. And all who came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died stood still. So David's side is taking losses. Saul's side is taking losses. You can imagine Asahel, he's got kind of this idealistic young guy who's like, man, I'm gonna fight for my, my side, I'm gonna take him out. But he ends up getting taken out too. Each side is taking significant losses, losing people that they love, needlessly dying. And a civil war ensues. We read right after this in chapter three, verse one, that now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. It would go on seven years, the civil war that ensues in a power struggle to find who gets to be in charge. It's tragic when brothers and sisters are stabbing brothers and sisters. And this is not just back then, sometimes today, it's just we don't use daggers, literal daggers. We use daggers of words at times. We can break into these different factions. You know, Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, he talks about this with the early church, and this is not just an Old Testament thing, this is a, a church thing. He says, hey, some of you are going, like, I follow Paul, and others are going, I follow Apollos. Others are saying, I follow Cephas, and others are saying, I, I, I follow Christ. He's going, was Christ divided? Paul says, he's like, man, there's a unity to the people of God, to the body of Christ, and you guys are forming into these factions and going against one another, and your words are like daggers, and you're tearing each other apart, but Jesus died for a united body, a united people. Now, 10, 20 years ago, when I was kind of growing up in the faith, and we had our own kind of similar version of this at that time, you know, there was this time where people were, you know, there were some people who were kind of going, hey, I follow Tim Keller, and others were going, well, I, I follow Francis Chan, and others were like, well, hey, I'm, I'm of the house of John Piper, and others were like, well, I'm of the house of Matt Chandler, and, and people kind of get a little antagonistic and, and, and throwing words and darts at each other, whatever, and, and we had to go, no, Christ died for the unity of his body. We could be united people of God and come together and work through it. But now one of the interesting observations I found today is that we still have these different factions that we're following, but these leaders that we're following are often not even Christian. They're not even necessarily part of the church or the people of God. And so we got people today, some people are going, well, hey, I follow Tucker Carlson. And others are going, well, no, I follow Anderson Cooper. And some people are going, well, hey, I'm of the house of Ben Shapiro. And others are, well, I'm of the house of Nicole Hannah Jones. And, and we can start, man, these can be like the generals recruiting people where and, and this, is not, this is in the church, people going, these are my generals, and we begin fighting and throwing daggers at one another with our words, and I believe Paul would say again, is Christ divided? He died to unite his people with him and with one another through the power of his blood. Is Christ divided? Don't divide the body of Christ. Now, <clears throat> these can be like generals recruiting people to take up arms against one another. Uh, you know, the generals are doing fine. Like, 
those names, they're making millions, right? But they're often recruiting young people, and social media can be like our pool of Gibeon, where they're bringing about, hey, let's just have a little wrestling match. Let's see you guys kind of wrestle. But before we know it, young people have been, re- people have been recruited into this, and they're pulling out daggers and stabbing one another within the body of Christ. Words. The body of Christ is fractured, divided, and bloody. In our uncivil war, brothers and sisters are stabbing brothers and sisters with their words. Now, I want to thank you as a congregation. Like, as we think about this, I mean, we've seen this nationally, but I have just been blown away by the way that you all as a church body have navigated and walked through the last few years, that as a church, you have spoken with kindness. You've worshiped God above other idols and ideologies. You've thought the best of each other. You've approached one another with curiosity and asked questions. There's been a humility and a coming together of having our different leanings, having our different perspectives, but staying at the table together and seeking to be united in life with Christ. And I've no friends, pastors, you know, nationally, other parts of the country where, man, they've got horror stories of just how their churches have exploded or imploded at times. And it's Tragic, And so I want to thank you for the way, as a church body, that you have stayed united to Jesus and to one another through the last few years. And yet, I still think it's important that we re-up on this theme occasionally from time to time, right? We remind ourselves for a couple of reasons. One, uh, because there are some of you who are new. And it's important that we kind of say, hey, this is what we believe Christ is calling us to as a people, is to stay at the table together, to stay, to value the unity for which Christ died. And another reason that I think is important is because for all of us, we live in the pressure cooker, right? Like we're experiencing the pressure and the pull in these ways. And so it's important to remind ourselves going, this is the bigger picture of what Jesus is calling to us to. Now, it's not saying that we won't, we will have like our leanings and our opinions and our perspective. That's good. And it's not saying that we can't talk about, have the hard conversation. It's not saying that, but it is saying that we worship Jesus as our highest allegiance over any other allegiances, and we treat one another with kindness and humility in how we approach these things together as his people. So one of my questions for us this morning is, which general are you following, right? Which general are you following? It's not that we won't have our leanings, we all do, and I, I will listen to things nationally, like we wanna be informed and learn and have perspectives and engage, all, all that, but are you letting them recruit you to fight for them, right? Don't let them bring you to the pool saying, hey, it's just a wrestling match. And before you know it, they got their daggers out, and so you gotta get your dagger out, and you're going at it. Don't get recruited to fight for them. It struck me as well that, at least in this scene, these young men, it was hand-to-hand combat where you had to look the person in the eye that you were battling with. I think one of the challenges today with online is the more distant it becomes, the more easy it is to dehumanize and not even see the person that you're throwing daggers at, Right? Like, that's one of the reasons why, man, I think sometimes when people over email or text can be so much more brutal. And if you send me one of those raging emails, it's fine, you can send it, bring it, right? But that's why what your response you can expect is that my first thing will be like, hey, can we meet in person to talk about that? Or hey, can we hop on the phone at least to talk about that? Because it changes when we begin to see the dignity in the other person as someone who bears the image of God and approach them with humility that way. Okay, well... His brothers are stabbing brothers here in this scene, and yet David shows us a different posture. He shows us a posture that foreshadows Christ. Let's look at how David himself acts towards Saul's house. This is uh, in chapter one, so we're gonna go back a chapter at the beginning here in chapter one, and this is where David is hearing the news about Saul's death. 
So Saul's just died, a guy comes from the battle, he's like, hey, David, I escaped from the battle, and Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. And David's like, well, hey, how'd he die? And he says, I killed him. Like, I, I was approaching him. I saw Saul leaning on his spear. The enemy was closing him around him. He asked me to kill him. I said, okay, and I, I struck him down dead. I took his crown, and I brought it here to you, David. And he's expecting David to be stoked. He's kind of going, hey, David, here, you get to be king now. Your enemy's gone. Like, you get to be in power. I struck down your enemy. And here's David's response in verse 11. David says, then David took hold of his clothes and tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for all the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. It's not the response this guy was expecting. David is mourning, he's fasting, he's tearing his clothes apart, he's entering sackcloth and ashes, he's weeping for Saul and Jonathan. It goes on, it says, and David said to the young man who told him, where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. And the Amalekites were enemies that Saul had had to deal with a lot. And so the picture here is kind of like they finally got the best of them. And David said to him, how is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, go, execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. Yet not the news that he was expecting. Uh, David said to him, your blood be on your head for your own mouth has testified against you saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. And David goes on to uh, write a lament, a song of sadness for Saul and his son, Jonathan. It is shocking to encounter a weeping king. It's shocking to encounter a weeping king. This guy, this uncivil warrior is shocked to encounter David as a weeping king. He's expecting David to be stoked. He thinks he is bringing him good news. I took out your enemy for you. You get to be in charge now. The guy seeking to take your life is gone. You're in power. Congratulations. But David is sad and angry. He tears his clothes and he weeps and he mourns. He can't eat. He fasts. He writes a sad song saying, oh, how the mighty have fallen. And he executes the guy. He strikes him down. It sucks to be the bearer of bad news, right? Especially when you think you're bringing good news. Now, this is such an important theme here in this section of 2 Samuel. It actually shows up three times in these five chapters, scenes like this. And this is such an important theme, I think, what Scripture is trying to communicate and wants to see that. I want us to take a look at the, the two other scenes. There's three total. Let's look at, that was one. Let's look at the two other scenes where this takes place. And so if you go to chapter three a little bit later, and now this is, that, that was about David hearing about the death of Saul. Now, this is where he's gonna hear about the death of Abner, Saul's general, who was assassinated. So Joab, David's general, he assassinates Abner. Now, Abner has made a treaty with David. He's helping David out at this point. Uh, but Joab wants revenge for his brother Asahel, the Olympic runner who got taken out, you know? So he goes behind David's back. He lies to Abner, sets up a meeting with him, and he assassinates him. And if you're David, you think, like, whew, thank goodness, like, okay, my enemy's gone. Like, that guy, I don't have to deal with his shenanigans anymore. Why not? But how does David respond? Let's see in chapter, or chapter three, verse 28. David's response is this. <clears throat> it says, afterward, when David heard of the assassination, he said, 
I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall upon the head of Joab and upon all his father's house, and may the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge or who is leprous or who holds a spindle or who falls by the sword or who lacks bread. It's quite a curse. He goes on and says, so Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother Asahel to death in the battle of Gibeon. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and mourn before Abner. He's like, I'm gonna make you guys mourn for the guy you killed, whether you like it or not. And King David followed the Be'er. They buried Abner at Hebron and the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner. So he's wailing and, and all the people wept and the king lamented for Abner saying, should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, your feet were not fettered. As one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. And all the people wept again over him. Then all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was yet day. But David swore, saying, God do so to me and more also if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. David once more is sad and angry. He's a weeping king. Everyone is shocked to find him weeping and wailing and fasting and mourning and lamenting over this division amongst his people, over the ways that they are mistreating one another. They think they're serving him, and he's actually disgusted by it and confronting it. Let's look at one more example in chapter four. Last one here. This is um, uh, Rechab and Bana. We're going to be in chapter four, verse six. So Rechab and Bana, they are two raider captains. They're sort of like Mafia warlords who've been uh, you know, raiding and plundering folks for Ishbosheth, Saul's son. And they now uh, are going to come and uh, basically they're seeing that the power, the tides of power are shifting. Things are starting to shift towards David. And so, like, hey, this is our chance to switch sides. So they sneak into Saul's son's house while he's sleeping and they assassinate him. They murder him as well. So let's check this out in verse uh, chapter 4, verse 6. It says, and they came into the midst of the house, this is Saul's son, as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Bana, those raider captains, uh, his brother escaped. When they came into the house, as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. They took his head and went by the way of the Arabah all night. And they brought the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord, the king, this day on Saul and on his offspring. So they're saying, Man, we did it for God and we served you. Aren't you happy? Uh, but David answered Rechab and Bana, his brother, the sons of Rimon the Berethite. As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity, when one told me, Behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. He thought he was bringing news of a wedding ceremony. He was bringing news of a funeral, his own. He goes on, how much more when a wicked man have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men and they killed them and cut off their hands and feet and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. David is a weeping king. He doesn't respond how the people expect him to respond. All three of these stories, the people think they are bringing him good news about the death of Saul, about the death of Saul's general, about the death of Saul's son. They think they're bringing good news and they are shocked 
to encounter a weeping king who is sad and who is angry at the division amongst his people, at the mistreatment amongst the people of God and the ways that they are using this thing. They think they're serving him, but he confronts them. He's disgusted by their actions. And this is, picture, this is a picture of Jesus. Jesus is a weeping king. We read in the Gospels that Jesus weeps over Jerusalem, the city of God, the people of God. He weeps over their sin and their division and their violence and their fracturing. And he says in the Gospels, he's like, man, how I longed, O Jerusalem, to gather you under my wings, to unite you and bring the peace of my kingdom through you as my united people. Yahweh, God himself, has taken on flesh and has come to redeem and restore, but he weeps over the fracturing of his people that he's called to be in his kingdom. Jesus is sad over the division and violence of his people because you gotta do the king's work the king's way, right? I think what this is saying is you gotta do the king's work the king's way. You can't just say the ends justify the means. David didn't play like that and Jesus doesn't either, right? And so I have to confess, man, I've been tempted by this at times. There's been times over the years where I've been tempted to not do the king's work the king's way. In my context, kind of ministry, there's been times where I've been tempted to kind of try and use guilt or manipulation or things to motivate or to rally or to get things going. But then I found myself convicted and confronted by Jesus and Jesus going, Josh, you say that you're doing my work, but you're not doing it my way. And going, I need to let go of that. And Jesus is saying, if you're trying to do my work, but you're not doing it my way, that's not actually my work, right? It's not my work unless you're doing it my way. Jesus is not only sad, he's also angry. He says in the gospels, hey, many will come to me saying, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these amazing things in your name? Yeah, did you see God, the amazing things Jesus I was doing for you? And Jesus says, and I'll say, away from me. I never knew you, right? Like, Jesus, did you see that amazing Facebook post I wrote just putting that lib in their place? Jesus is like, away from me. I never knew you. <clears throat> Jesus did you see how I, I left my church the second they started talking about justice and I told them I ain't gonna be a part of a woke church? And Jesus is like, away from me. I never knew you. Jesus, did you see how I deconstructed historic Christian theology to meet the uh, progressive ideals of my culture and I, I kind of updated, I was updating you, Jesus, for the 21st century and did you see how I railed on your, your faithful people, God, and called them, man, get, get with the times. And Jesus is like, away from me. I never knew you. The reality is that you can think that you're serving Jesus, but you're actually making him weep. That many people, I believe, are gonna be shocked to encounter Jesus as a weeping king. There is a tone of contempt in our culture today, and it has invaded the church. We see this in our culture, this contempt, that if you try and collaborate or compromise or work together or think the best of, uh, we see this in our culture, like trying to work across the aisle, that let's say if someone's on the conservative side and they're trying to work and collaborate with someone more on the left, they'll be called a rhino, a Republican in name only. And if someone's on the left and they're trying to work on the progressive side and they're trying to work or collaborate with someone, with someone more on the conservative side, they'll be called a Nazi sympathizer. Like, dude, you're just fraternizing with the enemy, right? And this tone of contempt in our culture has impacted how we speak about each other. It has become normalized to use gossip and rumor and slander and accusation, and people will act like they're serving God when they do so. And this is not just 
in our culture, this tone of contempt and kind of the atmosphere that we breathe has invaded our homes. We see often in the way that we speak to one another in everyday life, like you, you never do the dishes. Yeah, well, you never show me affection. You never, and you never, and you never. And there is a tone of contempt and hostility that has invaded our homes and our lives. And it's also invaded the church. There has been an increase in rumors and slander and gossip and all those things. And people doing that, thinking that they're serving Jesus, and yet Jesus is saddened at the division and fracturing it's causing amongst his people. And he's angry at how it's distorting and misrepresenting his witness to the world. So one word of advice, man, if you have questions even about us, you know, as a church, what we believe, where we think, in the midst of some of the gossip and slander stuff that can go around, just come and ask us. Like, we love to talk about this kind of stuff, but just come and ask if you've got questions. Um, what did you mean by that? Or I heard this thing, is that true? You know, we had a, uh, I remember it was a couple years ago, and um, it was 2020, and then we had a small group leader, a volunteer leader, who'd been a part of the church for about a decade, and suddenly just fell off the face of the map. Like, it just dropped off, wasn't responding to emails, wasn't responding to text messages, and like, what's going on? Where'd they go? Are you okay? And we're like, okay, we'd love to connect. What's going on? And finally, after about a year, they said, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to talk now. I'm willing to connect. We, okay, so we met. And I remember asking, I was just like, well, what happened? Why, why'd you leave? We, we love you. We miss you. What, what happened? Why? And what had happened was he had heard a rumor that we were funneling millions of dollars in tithe money to Black Lives Matter, the organization, BLM. And he's like, I was so angry when I heard you guys were funneling our money that I left. And I was just like, it's not true, dude. It's so simple, but it's not, it never happened. Like, it was just there was some slander, some whatever gossip going around, whatever. It's not true. And I wonder how many of kind of the, man, just the contempt and the different stuff that's going on today could be resolved if we would slow down and we would take the time to be curious and ask questions, be humble, and not be so quick to just go. And like, if you, I was just like, dude, if you had just come to me and asked me, like, Josh, did you give money? Now, it's true. We did give like a million and a half dollars to churches that were hard hit during the pandemic. And many of these churches were impoverished communities in the nation. But these were churches that we had longstanding historic relationship with. And part of, many of them were part of Tim Keller's City to City Network. Others were ministries we have a lot of relationship with on the Navajo Reservation here in Arizona and amazing work that they've been doing. And so this was like supporting the church, the people of God in a trying time when many were struggling. That's like, oh, dude, it was just rumor. All you had to do was come and ask. And now if you had come and asked, and said, hey, Josh, did you give money to BLM? Now, if I had to be honest, I would have had to say, well, yes, actually. So uh, backstory, you know, this last year I was on a family vacation and we went to a national park and we went up to, there's a $5 day pass you had to get for your car. And so I paid $5 to the Bureau of Land Management. BLM, right? And so I confess, I did it. I took Josh, I, Josh paid, you can tell me, Josh paid $5 to BLM, but it was the Bureau of Land Management and it wasn't your tithe money, it was my own personal $5. So get off my back, right? Now, again, I wonder how much of the contempt in our culture could, would, man, just be diffused if we would slow down, if we would ask questions, if we would listen to each other, if we would be humble, and again, I want to thank you because as you guys have navigated this so well, but we see this in our broader culture at large right now. It's in the atmosphere, it's in the air, and we want to re-up and just call on ourselves to be a people who worship God and love one another and have fruitful speech with how we speak with one another. That 
If you're a follower of Jesus, you follow a different kind of king, a king who values and prioritizes and prizes the unity of his people enough to go to the cross and die for it. So we wanna join Jesus in valuing that kind of posture towards his people. All right, well, what is our hope? What ultimately will bring an end to the uncivil war and how should we live right now in the meantime? We see that in chapter five. So let's go to chapter five, verse one. Read, then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, behold, we are your bone and flesh. They're saying, hey, David, we are your brothers and sisters. We are flesh and bone. We're one blood, like we're many tribes, but we're one family. We go on, in times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So what saying is, dude, God has prom- fulfilled his promises to you, David. Like God told you long ago, this day was gonna come and now it's here. It's been a long road to get here, but God has done it. Verse three, so all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign and he reigned 40 years. So 40 years, so it's been a long time, over a decade now to get here, but the years of his reign are way longer than the years of his exile. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. What brings an end to the uncivil war is when the kingdom is established. The uncivil war ends when the kingdom is established. So what happens here for Israel, their uncivil war ends here when David's kingdom is established. God's promises to David are fulfilled. You know, it's interesting, it was all the way back in 1 Samuel 16 when God anointed David and called, hey, you're gonna be king. He was still a teenager back then. And now it's over 20 chapters, it's like 20 chapters later and over a decade later where this is fulfilled in David's life. And I believe it may seem like a long time for us at times before God's promise is fulfilled. For you and I, we're waiting not on David's kingdom, but on the son of David's kingdom, on Jesus's kingdom. And it can feel at times like we're in that decade where, man, there's enemies and there's division and there's opposition. And it can just feel like, man, this is just the way things are and this is the way things are always going to be. And yet the day is coming when Christ's kingdom will come on earth as in heaven and the years of his reign eternally will reign way longer than the years of fracturing and division that we live amidst today. David's kingdom is established here in Jerusalem. And I think that's significant. The Jerusalem uh, literally means, the capital of Israel, it literally means city of peace. Yerushalom, city of peace. And so David's kingdom is established in the city of peace in Jerusalem. That's what it was calling was, what it was called to be. And our hope, similarly, Jesus's kingdom in Revelation 21, 22, where our hope is in the new Jerusalem. At the end of Revelation, which is the city of peace where Christ's kingdom comes and he brings his peace for his people and for the world. So the question, I believe, is how do we prepare for Christ's coming kingdom today? For you and I, how do we live? What kind of lives should we live here and now to anticipate the kingdom that's coming? What makes me think of my first job in high school, I worked at Baskin Robbins. And dude, I love it. It was a great, great first job. It was great 
jobs, especially in the summertime when it's hot and people would come in from outside, they'd be all hot and sweaty. Uh, they'd be kind of grumpy and just kind of, you know, come in with whatever on their face. But then you would see when they would taste the ice cream and they would have uh, the, the sweetness and kind of the cool, cold, refreshing, and it would transform them. They'd kind of get the smile on their face. Their frown would turn upside down, you know, and they would just start to get the light in their eyes and they would walk out refreshed and encouraged. And now you'd think working at Baskin Robbins that you'd get free ice cream, right? And, uh, but our boss wasn't having it. He'd say, no, you're not doing any of that. But he did say is like, what you guys can have is one of the taster spoons, right? Like one of the pink taster spoons. And these pink taster spoons, here's something you may not know about these things actually. You can actually fit a lot of ice cream on these things, right? <laughs> like I found if you tried, if you worked and you dug it out, you could pull it out, you could have a whole scoop of ice cream like sitting on this thing, right? But the thing was, hey, you can't have the thing, you can have, just have the taster spoon. And I love these little taster spoons. These are kind of classic. You know, you think about these things and uh, they're classic. And the idea with the taster spoon is someone is coming in and they're hot and they're sweaty and they're tired and they're, they're going, man, I want, I want to know what that one tastes like. Would you give me a taste of that Jamocha almond fudge or of that, that gold metal ribbon or that daiquiri ice? And, and you kind of scoop out a little taste and they try it and they see if they want it. Like, oh, that's, that's the one I want. And so what these pink taster spoons provide, it's a taste of what's coming, right? It's a taste of what's coming if you want it. And I believe that similarly, you and I as the people of God, that we are called to be a pink spoon people, right? Like we are called to be a taste of what's coming. Can you imagine in our moment today, if people came out of the hot, sweaty kind of atmosphere of contempt in our culture, and they came in tired and grumpy going, I'm just fed up and I don't know, and I come in and like, I'm just tired, but they say, can I have a taste of that kingdom? Can I have a taste of the peace of God? And if they got a taste, and with ours, it may not seem like much, but that taste, we can go, hey man, this is just a taste of what's coming. Like, we actually taste the sweetness of God's kingdom and the cold refreshment that it brings to cool you down and bring you back to normal, to turn that frown upside down, to actually bring you into a space of going, like, oh, there's something more here. What if the church was like a better Baskin-Robbins, right, where people came in and they were experiencing a refreshment of going, this tastes different than what I'm experiencing out there. Like I come in here and I'm not getting daggers, like I'm getting pink spoons, right? Like I'm getting tastes of something different, a different vision, and that we are actually able to point through that to the kingdom that is coming. What if we were less defined by the cultural divisions of the four Americas and we were more defined by the coming, the culture of the coming kingdom. And as people came into the church, they got the pinks, they got the taste of the coming kingdom. Right? I believe that is what I was calling us to, is to be a taste of the coming kingdom. And so, man, the reason that I, I put these pink spoons on your chairs, you know, as you came in and I saw one of those, and uh, I apologize if you didn't get one. Bastion Robbins was being kind of stingy, so I couldn't quite get enough for everyone, so you can go there later today, and I don't know, get, get one. But the reason I wanted to give you one of these is that I wanted you to take this home. I want you to put it in whatever place there is where you're most tempted to cave into the culture of contempt that we live in today, right? Maybe that is by your keyboard, by your computer, right? I don't know, maybe that's, get a magnet, put it on your fridge, Maybe that is like in your wallet or on the dash of your car or wherever, but you would put this pink taster spoon and let it be a reminder when you approach that, that like you are called to be a taste of the kingdom. When I am called to be a taste 
of the kingdom of God that's coming. How do we do that? How can we be a taste of the kingdom? How can we be that pink spoon people? What, what does this remind us of? Well, I wanna give us three things that, I believe this, that we're called to in this, right? These three things are that we would worship God, love our neighbor, and have fruitful speech. Worship God, love our neighbor, and have fruitful speech. Here's what I mean by those. First one, that when we see this pink spoon, it would be a reminder, like, I am called to worship God above all other idols and ideologies. King Jesus has my ultimate allegiance over any of the generals that are trying to recruit me to fight for them. Like, I worship God first and foremost because in God's coming kingdom and in God's kingdom that's already broken in now, Christ is king, right? And so, I, yes, I will have my leanings, yes, I'll have my opinions, I'll have my perspectives, but my ultimate allegiance is to Christ as king because that is a taste of the coming kingdom. Second, that we would love our neighbors, going, I'm going to love my neighbors, I'm engaging in conversations and in things today, whether online or in person or whatever they are, that we would see the image of God in the other person, that we would recognize their dignity, that we would slow down and be curious, that we would ask questions rather than just coming in with, hot with accusations, that we would seek to listen and understand and to know and give people the ministry of the ear of actually being listened to. I think so much today, man, people just wanna be listened to. They're isolated and lonely and angry and wanna be heard. And so that we would actually minister to people, loving people, that where they're expecting accusation, they would encounter kindness and questions and curiosity and listening and seeking to know and understand. And the reason is because when we do that, we're being a taste of the coming kingdom where we are not only united with Christ, but united with one another in the love of God and his kingdom. The third thing that I want this to remind us of is that we would have fruitful speech, right? That in how we talk with one another, and I'm not saying by this that we avoid hard conversations or any of that, right? Like, like it's okay to talk about, we should be talking about the important things, and yes, even like First Wednesday coming up and other events, like we're all about talking about hard topics and engaging in conversations with one another and help it equip and help to grow in Christ. And so it's not saying that, but what it's saying is the way that we talk. That if we're doing what we might think is the king's work there, that we'll make sure we're doing it the king's way and how we talk with one another. Again, that we, our conversation would be marked by the fruit of the spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Reading last week, a buddy of mine, Jay Kim, he has a new book out called Analog Christian. He's talking about how so much of the pressures in this day are pushing against the fruits of the Spirit, that we're being pressured into a culture of contempt rather than the love the Spirit brings, to impatience rather than patience, to hostility rather than kindness and gentleness. You talk about kindness and gentleness today, and people go, that's just weak, right? People don't think that's weak, and you go, no, it's Christ-like. It's actually a fruit of God's Spirit, is to be kind and gentle with one another, right? And so that we would be a countercultural people, but a taste of the culture of the coming kingdom, that we would be quick to remove the log out of our own eye before seeking to take the speck out of someone else's, that we'd approach people with humility and kindness and grace. This is what it means for us to be a taste of the coming kingdom, a pink spoon people in the midst of the uncivil war of our day. As we do this, the invitation this morning as we come to the table is to the king of the coming kingdom, Christ, the weeping king. As we come to Jesus, what we see in David in this passage, it's a foreshadowing of Christ who so values the unity of his people 
that he gives his life for. He gave his life for us, for you and for I. As we come to the table, we come to the bread and the wine, his body broken and his blood given. Jesus gave his life that we might be united not only to him, but into life with one another. And so the invitation this morning as we come to the table is to come to Christ and to worship him and put him in the top place, our top allegiance, our top priority. Jesus, who came not with a dagger, but rather receiving the daggers. Words and accusations and violence and stripping him down, beating him bloody nailing him to a cross. He received it in order to reconcile us to God. Jesus, who did not participate in our uncivility, but rather is saddened over the ways that we mistreat one another and the ways that we tear apart the body for which he died, and who is angry and will ultimately deal with the arrogance and hard-heartedness and hostility and contempt that tears his people apart. And yet we also come to Jesus this morning in hope. We come to this table in hope because this is a sign and a foretaste of his coming kingdom. That Christ's kingdom is coming, it will be established, and the years of his reign will be way longer, way longer, eternally than the years of this uncivil war. So we come to Jesus this morning in worship and in love and in hope. Would you join me? Jesus, you are <clears throat> the king of the coming kingdom. Your kingdom is here even now today in our midst, God. God, we confess uh, just the ways that we as the church, as your people, God, that we have approached one another with daggers, God, brothers and sisters, stabbing brothers and sisters, with fear and anxiety and hostility and quick to kind of turn on one another. And God, we acknowledge and just repent and lament, God, of the gossip and slander and accusation in your body, God, uh, and just across our, our country and, and beyond, God, these things. And yet we thank you, Lord, that you don't celebrate it, God. You confront it, that you are saddened by and weep over the mistreatment we have with one another, Lord, that you are establishing a different kind of kingdom, Lord, that some of the things that we would do to try and quote unquote serve you that are not right, that you actually are angry about and you will set right, God. And God, we thank you for the hope that your kingdom will be established. This hope is secure, Jesus. Your kingdom is here and it is coming and we'll have the last word. So we pray, Lord, that you prepare us to be a taste of your coming kingdom. And we would be like that pink spoon, man, it may be small, it may not seem like we have so much to give, but that it can actually fit a lot on the spoon of our lives, on our lives and who we are, God, and that that would be a taste, Lord, that people would actually experience today, Lord, a taste amongst your people of the refreshment, the sweetness, and the glory of your kingdom that is coming for the world. And so, Lord, we pray that we would be a people who worship you, God, above all others, that we love one another as you have loved us, and that we have fruitful speech Mark bears the fruit of your spirit. Jesus, it's in your name and for your glory that we pray. Our mighty and coming King.